Hey guys, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Hey y'all, welcome to the show. This is fun. Today we have a super special bonus episode coming your way that I am really excited to share with you. If you have known me or listened to the show for more than eight seconds, you know that my personal love for books and reading runs super deep, obviously. I mean, I started a whole Jen Hatmaker book club just so I could create my own little community centered around books and reading. That's a part of my education process. It's a part of my development process. Reading makes me wiser and smarter and more connected to the world and more curious. I think it's important for all of us. So a few years ago, like a ton of you, I picked up a book and it was recommended to me by no less than a dozen people. So you know, when that starts happening, they can't all be wrong. And it was written by none other than our guest today. Tons of you have read it and it's educated by Tara Westover. And this book blew me away. It blew us all away because it was just so profoundly fascinating, like fascinating to read. You cannot tear your eyes away. So if you haven't read educated, like here's a synopsis. Tara was born in Idaho and she lived in a very, rural community with her extremely, and like emphasis on extreme, religious family. And so she had a childhood that was wildly different than what most of us experienced. She basically grew into the courage to to leave eventually and pursue an education, even though she hadn't stepped foot in a classroom until she was 17 years old. Her family was sort of off the grid. They were survivalists, no schools, no doctors, you know, all the systems were sort of considered to be evil and corrupted. And you just almost can't believe it when you're reading it. And she's an incredibly gifted writer. And so she's a storyteller. She kind of walks us through her childhood and then her departure from it. Because I mean, talk about a departure. So remember, she never even went to school until she was 17 and then went on to receive her BA from Brigham Young University, and then studied at Cambridge and Harvard. Tara earned her PhD in history from Cambridge in 2014, and then she published Educated in 2018. And then y'all, this book blew up. I mean, it blew the freak up. It spent over 135 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It won the American Bookseller Association's Book of the Year, the Goodreads Choice Award for memoir and autobiography. So not only was it a huge winner in these massive categories, it was applauded and celebrated by the New Yorker, the Oprah Magazine, the Obamas. Like it was an absolute hit, a runaway hit. And and I know why, because it's, It's such a fascinating read and she is such a captivating storyteller. And she and I talk about this in the interview, but even though her story is an extreme one, you know, she had sort of a very outlier childhood experience. A lot of what is baked into it is common, just hard things from childhood, parents who sort of bake in a lot of complications for you that you then have to deal with as adults. Like you could grow up in a suburb and still relate to a lot of the internal conflict that Tara went through and then worked through later. And so 
It's fascinating. So if you read Educated, you're going to love this conversation. We talk a lot about what she's working on now, what she's learned since. She's really frank about it. Very, very candid. I appreciate that. And if you haven't read this, get excited. This like put it, go, go get it. Go get it. The reason we're talking about it is because Educated has just come out in paperback. Um, and so like I told her, great, now I can carry it on the airplane because I'm not taking that hardback with me. So she is smart and interesting and you're going to love her. So enjoy this conversation, this bonus conversation with the delightful Tara Westover. Tara, <laughs> I'm so happy to meet you. I'm not even joking. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. I feel like I know you. I read your book right when it first came out, like the rest of the world did, then talked about it ad nauseum to anybody who would listen. I'm like, <laughs> this is, everybody look alive. I've got an assignment for you and we won't be speaking until you've read it. And then you can come back to me and let's discuss. So I'm just really like genuinely thrilled to meet you and thank you for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. So for the handful of my listeners who haven't read Educated, who are new to you and your story, I've told them just a little bit about you, like a little peek into your life, but barely, I just touched down, you know, because obviously to say you had an unconventional childhood is obviously an understatement. This is the center spoke of your whole story. So I wonder if you could just sort of walk my listeners through a little bit, what it was like for you growing up and at what point it started to become clear to you that other kids didn't live this way and, and how long you were able to stay just enmeshed in your world before you knew that before all of a sudden you were like, wait a second, something's different here. Yeah. I mean, I always knew that we were different because other kids in our town, they went to school, they had birth certificates, they went to the doctor, they had all these, you know, I knew that they did that and I knew that we didn't. And so I always was aware that we were living in a different way. It was just the way that I experienced that difference was that we were right and everybody else was wrong, simply like everybody else was wrong and we were going to live through the apocalypse and have food because we were storing all this food and we were going to, you know, God liked us better, basically. So I just experienced it as us being better. I think it was as I got older, that feeling became a little more nuanced because you know, I wanted to go to school. All the kids in my town went and I didn't have a lot of friends because I was the weird kid who didn't go to school. And, you know, I started wanting to go. You'd hear people talking about the assignment Mrs. C gave out. And I was like, hey, Mrs. C, what's an assignment? And I wanted to be a part of that. And so that was, I think, the first little schism for me where I started to want to go to school. And then the, the way that that would go is that my dad would kind of say, well, I've prayed about it and God doesn't want you to go. And then I would go pray about it and I would come up with the same <laughs> conclusion <laughs> as my dad, you know, miraculously, except for a couple of times when I didn't, you know, and I would really try to push back and like, no, I think he wants me to go. And, and then, and then I would kind of find out, no, I can't actually, it's just not allowed. But I think that was the first, that was the schism, I guess, in as much as there was just this kind of slight gradual feeling of the way we're living is the correct way. Doctors are bad. Schools are bad to, well, I want to see what this is. What is that? Mm, I just want that one assignment, you know, just that one teacher assignment, dad. So you're like, obviously touching down on it and alluding to it, but for people who haven't read your book yet, and they're trying to read between the lines, like what's the snapshot of the way that your family operated kind of your family rules and what the deal was. 
Well, you know, my dad, he just, there were a lot of things that most people kind of take for granted institutions. Most people take for granted that my dad didn't believe in or thought had been compromised. My dad was a pretty big conspiracy theorist. So he, he talked a lot about this thing called the Illuminati or he used different phrases for it, but, but the Illuminati was a pretty common one that he thought doctors and hospitals were a part of this. They weren't actually trying to heal you. They were trying to make you sicker. And there's this big global conspiracy of, of, you know, of people who were, you know, working with Satan, I guess, is the idea. So that's why the schools were off limit. Doctors were off limit. No hospitals, no vaccines. No. Yeah, we didn't have a birth certificate. I think I got my birth certificate when I was nine. And yeah, so we lived in this. We weren't isolated. We went to church. We weren't completely isolated, but but we were pretty isolated for all that because we, even though we were Mormon, we weren't really the Mormon. We weren't really Mormon in the way that the other people in our town were Mormon. You know, they were mainstream Mormon. Mainstream Mormon, you go to church, you go to school. It's like a more mainstream, but my family was living in this totally different way. So we were, we were a little bit isolated in that way. Yeah. I remember when I was reading your book the first time, it was interesting to learn that you and your siblings all had different sorts of perspectives and pushback toward the way that you were being raised. And, you know, you didn't have just one sort of shared agreed upon perspective of your experience. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit, if you could, and how that has impacted you and how it's impacted your adult relationships. Yeah. I mean, I think it's almost more dramatic even than that. It's not even that we as individuals had different experiences from each other. (laughs) I, I sometimes feel like we have different experiences almost as individuals you know there are times when I would talk to my brothers about our upbringing and it it would just vacillate really dramatically from one day to the next like talking to the same person and I was like that there were there were days when I would look at our upbringing and I would think my gosh we were raised by these like crazy people and then there were other times I would look at it and think oh no they've got some interesting beliefs but it's pretty you know it's okay and even within myself I would swing around because in a, in one some moments I would be kind of ready to look at it and say, well, what was that? And in other moments, you know, you love your family, you love your parents, and it's a very unpleasant thing to try to look at things that were negative and use really difficult words like abuse, a really hard word, really hard word for me to even use. But the reality is if you're going to deal with the consequences of that, you kind of have to be able to look at what it is and hold that in your mind and not just be ping-ponging around back and forth and one minute say, oh, everything was perfect and it was really great. And the next minute, you know, say everything was really horrible. You have to try to find some kind of story that you can hold on to and tolerate whatever that story is. What would you say? Like, what does that look like for you now? What, What is that story? How are you able to hold the tension with your adult mind? And the, just even the power of distance and perspective and a broader understanding. And, you know, how, how would you describe that now? You know, I've I've done a lot of therapy since the book came out Mm -hmm, a lot, like even since writing it, since having it come out. And I would say the difference now, even between who I was when I wrote it is I just have a higher tolerance for the unpleasant, painful things. And that doesn't mean it doesn't mean that I live in them all the time. It just means that I don't have to leave because it's too uncomfortable. I can sit with the problems my dad had that, that 
worth something closer to abuse. You know, I can sit with that and I don't need to immediately pivot to, oh, he did the best he could. And it was wonderful. And, and you can, like, I think seeing, seeing stories from multiple points of view is really, really valuable and seeing, being able to understand that people are doing the best they can and that everybody has their own wounds and scars they're carrying. It's important to be able to see your parents that way, but it's, it's also incredibly important to be able to sit with your own experience, you know, and not just immediately pivot from how it felt for you, which is a really hard perspective to hold and just immediately pivot to them, you know, to be able to sit with your own story and experience is in my view, even if you've written a whole book about it, a really difficult thing to do. It's interesting to hear you talk about that, that some of that work has been since the book originally came out, because I mean, I can't imagine that in your wildest dreams, you could have ever perceived of what a runaway success your book was going to be just absolutely bananas, you know, just the, the rarest air, like the absolute rarest air. And so, you know, you're writing your story as you're writing it, it's just lonely work. You're just sitting at your laptop. And then all of a sudden the world's eyes are on your story and you've like garnered the attention of such like culture makers and I'm not surprised to hear you say, and then I went to therapy. (laughs) You know, it's kind of a lot of attention. (laughs) How did that feel? I'm serious. Like, was that overwhelming for you? You know, it was, it was all of the things. And I think, you know, you write the book and everyone tells you it's a horribly difficult industry and it is, and you can't even get an agent. You can't even get a publisher. And even if you do get a publisher, nobody going to read it. And that's like kind of, that was kind of comforting when I was writing it, you know, like, <laughs> sure. oh, great. I can write yes. anything and nobody will read it. So it doesn't matter. Totally. And uh, it, it felt like a kind of elaborate journal entry in that way. And so then when I did sell it, you know, I got this agent and a couple of, and I was still like, well, maybe I'll publish it. Maybe I won't, but it's nice if somebody wants to represent it. And then she sold it, I don't know, like a week or two later. And all of a sudden there was this energy behind it. And I, I felt it even before it was published, I felt it. And I was actually really scared. I was really <laughs> quite, yeah, my initial response was, was, was pretty fearful, I would say. And that was a difficult year. And then it came out and all these wonderful things were happening and they were so great. And I was so grateful to everybody who was reading it and, and making it this thing, but I was still pretty fearful actually. And I felt pretty guilty as the other side. I, I just felt guilty for having written it. I felt, I wasn't sure that I had a right to write it. I wasn't sure that people had a right to do this thing that I had just done. So I had really, really complicated feelings about it. And then there's, there was just the physical reality of going around the country for, or, or a couple countries for a year, two years, just talking about these really difficult things, which was actually really rewarding because, you know, I would hear from all these people who had maybe not the same life, you know, but I learned you don't have to be raised by survivalists in the mountains of Idaho to have a really complicated relationship with your family. And a lot of people have parents who are mental illness or alcoholism or were neglected as children themselves and just don't know how to be parents. And a lot of people are walking around with those kind of stories. And there's something amazing for me about being able to put it out and realize, oh, this is this is, this is affecting people. This is helpful in some way. But then there was also this kind of physical toll of that. And I'm actually grateful even for the difficult bits because it kind of broke me down a little bit. You know, I'd gone to therapy in graduate school, which I write about a little bit. 
But what I don't say in educated, which isn't true, which is the truth is that I went to therapy, but I never talked about my family. I talked about my boyfriend's family <laughs> because oh, I couldn't really so deal with it. Yeah. I was like estranged from my parents and I just could not even go into it. And I, I had therapy and it was actually helpful somehow, but I, I hadn't touched the core of it, you know? And what happened on the book tour is I was in the thick of it all the time. I was dealing with all this. And it kind of broke me down a bit. And I realized I'm actually just, I'm not okay. And finally went to therapy and actually was willing to say, you know, let's actually talk about what happened and not, not just about my boyfriend's parents. (laughs) Good for you. I mean, there's nothing like having that level of attention on your family story and talking about it literally around the clock for two years to bring it to the forefront at that point, yeah, I can horrible, imagine, but I'm yeah. grateful in a way. Cause I feel sure. like I might've, I probably would have eventually got myself to really go to, the, but probably when I was much older. So in a way, the intensity of it made me, it, it just made me sort myself out sooner and sorting yourself out sooner rather than later is almost always the right decision. <laughs> That's right. This idea of community, it's just so vital, right? Studies have proven again and again, that people in community have markedly improved physical, mental, and emotional health. So in the Gin Hatmaker Book Club, we talk about books every month, of course, yes. And we have all the bells and whistles to support that book talk. It's incredible. But what really we love, the absolute most, is each other. (laughs) Our book clubbers support each other like in the hard times. We celebrate each other in the good times. It's like magic. These are real, authentic, genuine connections that happen in our private face group, but also in real life. You guys, we have local chapters in cities and towns across the entire U.S. where members have cultivated, I kid you not, lifelong in-person friendships. They found their people. The sharing and caring that goes on in this community is just breathtaking, and you wouldn't believe the, the beauty that lives inside of this group. We want you to find the community and connection we all need. And we are waiting for you with open arms. So, I mean, come for the great books, but stay for the even greater community of women. Find out more at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. I'm interested to hear you say, if you can, because you're really transparent in the book. You, you very much discuss your own transformation, your own evolution, your shifting ideas, your internal conflicts. You know, you're pretty courageous about your authenticity. I'm curious now doing this kind of post book work in the story that you told us, what have you learned? What did you work through? What did you, what were you able to kind of either come to terms with or come to grips with or like see in a way that is now like a a healthy platform for you to live the rest of your life? No, it's like, it's a hard thing to talk about right now because it's actually what I'm, that's the next book that I'm right, I'm working on right now is actually that, you know. So if educated is about making that hard decision of finding a boundary, I think the next book, the best way I know how to talk about it is to say, it's a little bit more about dealing with that emotional inheritance. And for me realizing even after the book came out just realizing i am <laughs> i'm i'm in new york i could not have a more different life than the way i grew up and yet 
there are real ways where I am recreating it just continuously. Like I'm bringing those elements into my life again and again and realizing I don't really want to do that forever. I want to go figure out what in me is is needing that and, and maybe deal with it a different way. So that is what I'm trying to write about now, which is a very different kind of writing than the first than the first book. But it's it's yeah, it's that question of putting yourself back together again and realizing maybe the maybe what I was taught love was when I was little, maybe that actually isn't what it is. Maybe I actually haven't experienced it. And the first time I had that thought scared the hell out of me. Yeah. I mean, what is me? I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is major. What you're saying right now. Oh, what if I just don't know what it is? Like, what if I, what if I'm looking for and what I think love looks like and feels like is just not it. It's a totally different substance. And that was a really terrifying idea for a while. It's a major question you're exploring. Again, like back to something you said earlier, I can already predict the future here, which is that you will write through this in a genuine and authentic way. And it's going to be specific to your kind of outlier childhood. I mean, certainly that's, that's not, that's a, that's a marginalized experience that the common public didn't share. However, this idea of repeating patterns, bringing some of our trauma into our adult spaces and relationships and ways of relating to the world, that's ubiquitous. I mean, what's going to happen is people are going to show up in your book line and, and say, I mean, I like just grew up in the city, but I am doing the exact same that I did as a kid. That's going to have such a common bit of relatability. And so I commend you for doing that work. And it's probably a heavy lift. Are you finding it challenging to write about? You know, the therapy was really challenging, but the writing is so much easier than, than the last book, to be honest with you. And I think it's maybe kind of an effect of the therapy where a lot of, you know, I've read a lot of psych books and I've done a lot of therapy and I, you know, the, it's really the gift of the first book is that I had this freedom and this time and, you know, health insurance for the first time in my life. Exactly. I could, I could like take time and do these things. And I think it's maybe an effect of the therapy that a lot of the things that used to be just so painful for me to think about, so painful to think about, I wouldn't even think about them. You know, I would do anything. I would like cut off my hand rather than have to revisit some of these memories because that was a pain that was like imaginable and the other wasn't. And what's interesting, I think, is once you have gone into that place and you've let the grief out, for lack of a better word, as horrible as it is to do that, and it really isn't very pleasant, I don't know, there's, there is some potency that goes out of it. And I guess I would say I've always been somebody my whole life who's pretty afraid of feelings, like other people's feelings or my feelings, really anybody's feelings. Somebody that I knew a few months ago, or actually probably a year ago, someone close to them passed away, someone in their family, and they were so sad as you would be, as anybody would be. And I realized I couldn't even be around them because I just had to fix it. You know, I was like trying to do all these things. Like, why don't I buy you a dog? Why don't I like, I'm going to these insane places because I can't tolerate. And and I realized that. And it became something I I explored in my own process of of trying to work out. Like, why can't I, they're just feelings, you know, why can't I be with this person and let her be sad? Why does this scare me so much? And I think that's, that's one of the things that working through it did give me is a sense of, 
they're just feelings. Like they, they aren't going to kill you. It's going to be okay. You can just, you can just be sad. And weirdly, there's this kind of life or death energy. You know, I can't go there or I'll die, but dissipates, you know, and I kind of learned the power out of it. Yeah, I can be sad and, uh, and nothing. They're just feelings. They're just feelings. This is Mine, very relatable to me. They're just feelings. I spent last year in a major season of recovery from just the trauma of losing a 26-year marriage in a way that was not expected. It was shocking off. I'm sorry. Thank you. And so last year was just like, trying to piece a life back together, a very expected life. I mean, I saw the end of it. I'd written the whole script and I'm a person, most of my energy is outward facing. It's on you. It's on somebody else. It's on the world. And I struggle internally. And so I remember, I mean, so much therapy, but my counselor had to drill this into me. She would say it all the time because it was so hard for me to learn. She's like, Jen, sad is not bad. Mad is not bad. And hard is not bad. I'm like, it is. It's all bad. (laughs) It's not tenable. We can't survive it. She's like, no, you can. Like you can survive sadness and you can just have it. You can just be mad. And then that's the end of it. Like you're just a mad, you're mad. And it doesn't have to be, have a solution. I'm like, (laughs) all those things are scary to me too. And I'm having to work through that. So again, I know that your story is so specific to you. And yet some of what you're saying right now, is just like, oh. Same. I mean, that's the thing. I think growing up, difficult for everybody, almost no matter, you can have the most idyllic family and everything can be okay. And, and there's just ways that growing up, it can be deforming in a way. There's just natural things that are really hard in life, no matter how great things are around you. And so I think sometimes people feel guilty that they think, well, my parents were pretty good and my upbringing was good. And I went to a good school and they have something and they know they have it. But what happens is they feel guilty that they have it. And I just think it's something I've learned from all the readers I've heard from all the people I've met. I see that burden, that kind of inheritance in all kinds of people. And you don't, you just don't have to have been raised by survivalists for some, for the process of growing up to been hard. Like it's a hard process. That's like a really generous posture to take toward your readers and just people in general, which is going to serve you well, because that means that the way in which you're probably telling this portion of your story is it's inviting and it's welcoming and it has a soft space for other people to land, even if they just grew up in the most lovely suburban family that still find some hardness kind of baked into their growing life. up story. Life. Yeah, life, life, life. Everybody God. has loss and everybody has, oh, yeah, so, I, nobody so escapes real. it. You know, no, no, that's so right. I'm curious about this, Sarah, because I mean, obviously one of the overarching themes of educated is faith. And how you particularly were indoctrinated into it, but how a lot of us are in different contexts. And I was too. So, you know, we saw in your upbringing, a belief system taken to a pretty far extreme. And so I'm curious what this looks like for you now, now that you're obviously completely removed. I mean, you're, you're night and day different life than, than what you grew up in, how that portion of your own story has evolved and what did you keep? What did you release? Like, what does that look for you now as a grown person who has agency over her own belief system? That's a, that's a very big question. 
Yeah. I mean, I think faith for me has come to mean a lot of different things. And when I was growing up, it meant something very narrow, you know, it meant, it meant belief, not just in Mormonism, but in my father's Mormonism, which was had a very long list of quite specific rules that would change from day to day. I'm you know, okay, God doesn't want us to drink milk because I read something in Isaiah or doctors are bad or, you know, my dad, or we don't go to school. God doesn't want us to go to school. Like my dad's Mormonism was really, had a lot of specifics in it. And so that was what faith was. And then faith was like following my parents. And then there was a period where I was more of a mainstream Mormon and I was trying to let go of some of my dad's ideas. And then that was what faith was. And, and then I think, I think it it did change for me over time. I think especially there was a point, you know, I, I, w- I went to Brigham Young University and that was pretty hard because I hadn't gone to school growing up, but, but it, I was really lucky and people helped me and they took care of me. And I, I was, I found a much kinder world in a way than the one I'd grown up, grown up in. And I started to believe in that world. And I think that was a kind of faith. And then I went to graduate school in a foreign country that required a kind of faith because I didn't know what I was going to find there. And I'd never been around. I'd never lived anywhere that wasn't just, you know, Mormon. I, I don't know if I, there were any people who weren't Mormon whose names I knew when I left hmm. for England, maybe one or two. Wow. But, Is that yeah, right? Like, God. Yeah, people, I'm sure I'd met non-Mormons at the checkout at Walmart yeah. or something, but not anybody that I knew well, yeah. you know. And, yes, um, yes, yes. Okay. My life was Mormon. All of a sudden I was going to go to a foreign country where there weren't going to be any. And that was a, a kind of faith. And And I think I've, you know, the last time, one of the last times I went home was really dramatic night with, you know, confrontation with my parents about my older brother and my older brother threatening. And he, it was just, it was an insane scene. And it was the, one of the last times I went home. And I, I remember deciding to leave that night also felt like a kind of faith because it was like, yeah, here was this world that was familiar. That was the one I had grown up in. It was available to me. I knew how to navigate it sort of. And I was realizing, I just don't think I want to be here. I don't think this is the life that I want. And I don't, I don't want this for myself. I don't want this for my kids. I just, I don't want this, but you had to really believe that a different kind of life is possible. And that was hard for me. Even then, you know, even then I was in graduate school, I could almost imagine a life without my parents in it, but it was, it was an act of faith in a way to just say, I can walk out of here and build something better. That's possible. That's really powerful. And you did it. And I know you've heard it every which way, but your life is wildly extraordinary to have accomplished what you've accomplished. And had such like a, a a carte blanche overhaul of what you grew up in versus what you created for yourself. What does your life look like right now? Like, what's your deal? Where are your people? Like, what's your life? Well, you know, I live in Brooklyn and I enjoy that because there's a lot of writers around here and it's quiet here. You're not in the madness of Manhattan, but you get all the you kind of get the benefit of being around this concentration of like very energetic, very brainy people. So I like that. It's why I like university. I like New York for the same reason I like universities. You can just find, if you really want to understand something funny about geology, you can find someone who knows the answer to that question. That's right. Here. here. I love Mm -hmm. that. I love that feeling. So I would say there was a period when I first came to New York and the book was, you know, doing well. And I, I was kind of a little manic. I was running around meeting everybody all the time. And my life has become a little bit more repetitive and, and insular. And I mean that in the best way. Yeah, I do. Where, I hear you. 
Yeah, I have like a handful of friends I see all the time and I have a writing group and we read our workout to each other and we have, you know, it's just, it's a small crowd and I really, really like that. That's kind of become my, my beat. And uh, I have a, a partner, my boyfriend, he's from Mexico City and he is there a lot. He's a photographer, so he needs to be there. And so I'm there sometimes. And so I, you know, I get up, I walk my dog, I read, I write, and it's kind of a rinse and repeat situation. So it's just pretty calm. It's very different from how I grew up, but yeah, I mean, it really works for me. And it's so much, it's just, it's just a lot more peaceful than anything I experienced, you know, before the age of 25 or so. I mean, even different from the package of time around the book release, which was wild and also not calm, frenetic, not not calm, like so not relaxing. And so I can imagine that there's a craving for kind of a simple, repetitive, insular life. I completely understand that, which is good that you're enjoying that because it sounds like you're just going to steer right back into that curve here shortly. It's a new year, beloveds. We made it to 2022. This is a time where some of us may set resolutions or maybe intentions or words for our year. It's a great time to really reflect on where we need to just pull some different levers in our lives. This is why I'm also just so excited to introduce you to the Me Course series, which is a series that I have put out with my incredible team. Our mission here is simple. This is inspirational, educational, and actionable content, as I like to say, for the rest of us. It's not heady graduate level work here, okay? But it is what we all need, from finance to building better habits to cultivating simplicity in the name of wellness and more. These are some of the pillars where I personally have seen the most life change in myself and in others. And so with me course, we are telling you what actually does work. And I do it with some friends, friends who are experts in their respective fields, and they talk you through it too. We've really distilled it all down to the best of the best, a true highlight reel of everything you need to know in real life and how to make it work for you without you needing to commit hours upon hours of your time, which you don't have. Here's what you can expect four 15-ish minute sessions, and that's it. But also, as you will see, that is enough. We They are packed and condensed without tons of fluff. We also have a whole library of bonus resources to explore and implement and remind you of what you learned. You get it all. Let's start learning together and be here for our lives in this way. So register now at mecourse.org and use the code for the love to save $10 off already discounted prices. This is the best deal. I can't wait. Mecourse.org. Join us. Does the new book have a title? Can we even know it? Or is it, is it not even have a title? No, there's not a title. It's probably a quarter written. So a title, I'm hoping a title will present itself. Will come to you. Yeah. uh, At some point, but presently, presently now, no, there's no title. I'm very lazy on titling because I find it a challenging task. 
And so I almost never put a working title on any book I'm writing. It's always like a lazy title. I mean, I titled educated was always my title and I was so grateful they didn't change it. I think with educated, I didn't come up with a title for it until at least halfway through, maybe even okay. later. And it, it came to me, you. Took me a good long while. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I, t- I think I titled it An Education for a while, which was problematic. So there's already a book by that title. And then one day I realized actually there's a instead of the noun, <laughs> I go to educated as the as the adjective, it's actually a lot more provocative and has the virtue of not already existing. So yes, and also it's not plagiarism. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, you won't you won't get a cease and desist. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So I'm like, oh, that, that's actually better. And then I was really grateful that book had come out first because if I hadn't had that problem, I might have not kept chewing yeah. on it. So yeah. So you were maybe a quarter of the way through, and then you'll probably spend the rest of this year finishing it. Is that 2022 for you? Yeah, I think it will be. I mean, I hope to have a draft by the summer, but a draft, there's a draft and then there's a draft, you know, I don't know which draft I'm going to get. I might get a draft that is mostly there. I might get a draft that is a real wreck. I don't know the answer to that yet. So that is going to be the next, a lot of the next year. And and I think that is another reason why my life is so repetitive right now, because I find for writing, you need a pretty tight routine in your life. And if anything, I, I don't know what it's like for other people, but anytime anything remotely out of that tiny little routine comes in, I get completely thrown off balance because it's just an excuse not to work, you know? So it's like, I can't write today. My cousin had to go to the dentist. Yeah. I'm like, exactly. So as soon as, you know, it's like my, my dog got up at an irregular hour. I better not work today. You know, it's like, I can find, (laughs) and so uh, I find that the more boring I can keep my life or predictable than the, the fewer reasons I have to stop working. My ability to helicopter out of a writing task is robust. Like anything will work, anything. So you're so right. It, the life has to come down so low and just run at such a low hum. Otherwise I can't, oh, well, what, what am I going to do? Write a paragraph? Obviously not. How's your process? I tend to get stuck at the beginning and I just circle and circle and circle till the beginning is working. And then I can write the rest of the book. So for me, that beginning is a really long process. And then after that, it smooths out. But everybody has a different way of tackling what they're doing. And I would say the one thing I feel like I have learned is that just to trust the process. And so I think I suffered a lot more. I suffered a lot more writing my PhD. I suffered a lot more writing my master's. I suffered a lot more writing educated. I just suffered because every time it wasn't working, I was convinced it was never going to work and I just couldn't do it and blah, blah, blah. And now having written kind of three sizable things, you know, two of them academic and then, and then educated, I, I feel like one thing I know is that it will work eventually. And so I am just putting the time in, you know, and, and I, I try not to measure how successful any day of work has been by whether or not I actually, you know, wrote something I'm going to use. I just try to measure it as there's going to be a six month process here where I just sit down every day and I think about this and I try things and I just have to, you know, every day that I try to do that is one more day that I've done that. Because if I start marking it by, did I get anything usable today? I'll never work because the answer, I just won't, I won't get there until much later in the process. So yeah, I think having a little, a little faith in the fact that these are writing a book, they're big, big things and narrowing down, you know, what you're, what your life is about or what an experience is about or what are the main ideas you want to bring out or what are the little ideas that is really your mind cannot do that in one go nobody's mind can do that in one go you have to work on it and you know George Saunders 
has all this beautiful writing about how important revising is and how so much of what you do are just little revisions. So just, I think, I think it's in the guardian. He talks about it. It's just these little tiny changes, course corrections you make going over it again and again. And, you know, nobody's mind can produce a a book on the first pass. It just doesn't happen. And and it it happens with little course corrections. That's how it Mm. happens. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited for the paperback version of Educated for the, I'm going to say four dozen people that didn't read it the first time around. <laughs> so good on them. They can carry it on an airplane. Perfect. And I'm really excited about your next book. I can't wait to read it. And oh, thank you. to see it's encouraging because evolution, just personal evolution just continues. This isn't like the end of your story. It's not like, and then I got out and now I'm fixed. You know, and now, you know what I mean? It just keeps going and that's encouraging. Yeah. And everything's perfect. Yeah. I I hope you like it. It'll be very different. It's a different kind of writing and I'm still figuring out how to do that kind of writing. You know, I didn't do anything for several years after educated. I sort of did therapy. That's when I read a lot of books about psychology and I didn't do any of the things that people were saying, oh, you could do this, do this, do a podcast, do documentary, do this. I didn't do any of it. And until I kind of had this itch come back and realize I really do want to, I really want to write this. Yeah. This is something I really want to do. This is fantastic. I'm cheering you on in your quiet little broken life. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on the show again. I'm just, just a a fan and I think you are a profoundly gifted writer and I love the way your mind works and how you think and how willing you are to put that on a page for the rest of us. And so I hope this year of writing this part of your story is like nurturing for you. I hope it's cathartic and therapeutic and lovely. And I hope it just flies out of your fingertips once you get there. So um, <laughs> oh, we'll all line up kind. to buy it. You know, we will us and Oprah. So don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And, and yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Okay, Tara. Great to meet Bye. you. Nice to meet Bye. you. Bye. All right, you guys, a fantastic person, fantastic story, more to come from her, which I'm thrilled about. We definitely want this one to keep writing. And so if you haven't already picked up your own copy of Educated, just go get it. It's in paperback now, like you heard. So you can just cart it around in your little bag without like breaking your back and you can get it anywhere books are sold, of course. So I hope you enjoyed that. I was happy to bring that to you. All right, you guys. We like to do bonus EPs sometimes just a little like, Hey, we've got a really cool person on our radar and maybe it doesn't fit inside the series we're in, but we know that you would like to hear from this person and meet this person and enjoy this conversation. And so we can do that whenever we want. And the reason is because we're in charge of our own show. So there you go. All right, you guys, thanks for joining me. Have an awesome week. See you next time.